and talk about having a biblical worldview, which is incredibly important. But we don't want to deal with the humanity of that, that I don't come to the Bible as a tabla rasa, as something that I'm just free to interpret. What did they mean to say to their original audience? And then what is God saying to the church and people of faith through all time? And then how does that apply to us? That's a very hard and difficult process. That is the voice of Gary Stratton, Dean of Arts and Science and Professor of Spiritual Formation and Cultural Leadership at Johnson University. He joins me today to discuss spiritual formation and how to become a two-handed warrior. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Stratton, welcome. So glad that you're here. It's great to be with you, John. We begin our conversation with the two-handed warrior. What exactly is a two-handed warrior, and how did you come up with this concept? Yes. <laughs> well, there's the uh, uh, the humorous and the real. It grows from David's army in Second Chronicles chapter 12, where they're able to sh- sling stones and shoot arrows right-handed or left-handed. And uh, during our missionary journey to Hollywood, I realized how much There are people who are really good, Christians, who are really good at culture making, but they don't know much about faith building. And Christians who are really good at faith building, but they didn't know much about culture making. And they actually were kind of at war with one another in this war of words. And that by getting them together in the same room or the same website, having those conversations, that we we had some hope of creating people that are actually two-headed words. It could use the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. They could be committed to both culture making and to faith building. And uh, it's been a, a gosh, a 10-year journey now. So a two-handed warrior is a person focused on the life of the mind and the life of the spirit, a person committed to culture making and faith building. And this was your mission to Hollywood. Was it difficult to find people who are ambidextrous in this way? We Actually, it is. Not, but it's not hard to find people that, that want to be ambidextrous, that realize that there's a value there. Um, and uh, the, I mean, the first ones I met were Christians in Hollywood who given their lives trying to reach mainstream film and media, uh, and yet uh, were deeply uh, thoughtful people about their faith. And so there was a core to build on. And of course, then working in the academy, there was a core of people there as well that wanted to be able to bring those things together. So just not allowing yourself to get pushed into those, uh, I'm of Apollos, uh, I'm of Peter kind right. of, you know, controversies, but instead to be able to learn to listen to one another. And of course, Two Words worked well with my favorite movie, uh, Princess Bride, uh, with right. Amigo Montoya, who, uh, I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed. He was ambidextrous, and so right. it kind of created a humorous way to deal with the issues. So. And for those who are unfamiliar, Apollos and Peter, who were biblical characters, represent the idea of two positions appearing to be at odds with one another somehow you were able to get this all to work out, the two different positions of life of the mind and life of the spirit. Looking over your varied experiences as the former executive producer of the Hollywood-based nonprofit Act One, what was your initial approach with your students? 
Well, mostly I went to learn. I mean, I went as a career educator that was asked by uh, Hollywood professionals to help them uh, get what they were doing and training the next generation of uh, filmmakers of faith who want to go into mainstream Hollywood to help to do it more effectively. So the greatest blessing I had was to actually go through all the training that our students were going through. I mean, I thought I understood film. I thought I understood storytelling. And I'll tell you, I was so humbled. I mean, these men and women, a lot of it is incredibly intuitive and some of it is very studied. So you've got both kind of the artists and the technicians uh, in understanding story structure, but they are some of the brightest people I've ever met in my entire life and some of the most talented artists. So mostly I listened and I learned. Graduates of the writing program you directed include Academy and Emmy Award winning creative staff and producers, as well as writers for numerous feature films and shows appearing on, and here's the list, CBS, NBC, Fox, ABC, Sci-Fi, TNT, USA, Disney Plus, Netflix, and Amazon Prime. What is it like to share in the success of your students? I mean, to watch your students work on the screen, like, oh, what is the next thing that Monica's done? What's the next thing Cheryl's done? It is, it is really fun. Um, and to watch the amazing things that these people who are very much called to be uh, witnesses and lights in a dark world in the way anyone else would be in any industry that's not uh, overwhelmed with people of faith. You mentioned earlier The Princess Bride, the 1987 Rob Reiner directed comedy, which also is one of my favorite films. What sort of opposition, if any, did you face while you were in Hollywood? Uh, you know, the perception is that Hollywood is someplace that hates faith. And that's actually not true. There, it is the place that misunderstands faith largely. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's many historic reasons why Hollywood and the church, which actually started working together, all of initial Hollywood films were shown in churches in most towns. There was no, no, thing, no such thing as movie theaters. Lots of various reasons why this animosity has developed. Um, but most people in Hollywood are just looking for really good examples of someone who's living something out. Uh, I was there when The Blind Side came out. Uh, mm. And I just can't tell you what an impact that film had. This wow. presupposition in Hollywood that every single person who was a person of faith was, uh, was a bigot, basically, uh, is the way it'd be stated. And to, to see Leon Tui's, you know, example of being someone who is willing to be a very human, flawed character, and yet being willing to give, to see that faith in Christ means giving away your life to the best interest of others. Uh, and how Michael Orr, instead of being the, the one who is transformed, he transforms the family just as much in making them live up to their own Christian convictions, which is also something that a lot of people in Hollywood could live as is, wait a minute, I've read enough of the Bible, know about enough Jesus to know that you're not living up to the Bible and acting like Jesus. And so uh, it, it works. That is a very practical definition, or at least the defining of a stance that says faith in Christ means giving away your life in the best interest of others. That dovetails nicely with the quote I'm sure you are familiar with. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Yeah, I, I would go back to C.S. Lewis had this interesting idea that it's a big difference between, between dating or courting uh, a young woman who's never been married as opposed to dating uh, courting a, a woman who's been through a divorce that they're very different things. You don't have the idealism, you don't think everything will be hunky-dory, there's a lot of things to work through. 
And to some degree, our culture has divorced Christianity for reasons that they, they've rejected something that's not Jesus. I mean, they've rejected the way the church has acted. Uh, and so it becomes important to live a life that demonstrates you actually know how to act like Jesus, living your life for the best interest of others, living your life for, the, for your neighbor before you start getting too wordy. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, I've heard that quote attributed to so many different people. I don't know who said it first. Right, um, right. But it, it, there's a lot of truth in it that uh, we do need to, to speak for Christ, but the first witness is our life, not our words. Our culture being divorced from Christianity, that is a sobering thought and really draws attention to, or it at least should, to the importance of what we are modeling before others. As you are aware, I first became aware of your work when surfing social media. Your article posted on June 19th, 2020, God's Regret, the Bible, a King, and What's at Stake for American Christians in 2020. An excerpt from your article reads, Even in a theocracy, God does not promote men and women into positions of power with carte blanche approval of their actions. Well, when we have examples in the Old Testament of clearly God's told someone to be in a position of king or position of prophet. I mean, it's just unmistakable. God told them to do it. It's not, I, you know, today more, I think God's calling me to. Uh, and yet they still were held accountable for their actions. Um, just because they were God's person didn't mean that they were free to do whatever they want and God just approved of it. And that went certainly applied to Saul. It applied to David. Um, and there was repercussions of their actions uh, in their own life and in the life of the people that they were leading. Being called or appointed by God is a pretty lofty idea, balanced only by the idea of accountability. Those not wanting to wrestle with both of these ideas simultaneously, they can accept the premise of a calling or an assignment, but would rather their critics or critics of the candidate that they are supporting of their particular party, they want the critics to go away. They would rather we would all just stop complaining or nitpicking and get on board with whatever's happening. I think that's been perpetrated sometimes by leaders in the church that don't want to be criticized. <laughs> that exactly. I'm the Lord's anointed, that God called me this, don't, you know, don't mind. Don't confuse me with the facts, my mind's made up. Um, that's right. That, that's is, right. that is not... Uh, uh, it is not the humility of the gospel, and it's not even the way things uh, function. There was right. great collaboration and learning from one another that's modeled for us in the book of Acts. Was it your unwillingness to just go along with what is happening in this country that led you to publish the article, God's Regret? I think sometimes we want to remove the, the human causality responsibility that we have. We want to, you know, anything happens, we almost become an Allah wills it kind of thing. Well, it happened. It must have been God's will. That's not, you know, that's not why we're supposed to pray daily for the kingdom to come, for the will of God to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. God's will is not always done uh, in the in the immediate moral sense. So, yeah. But we want to say, oh, no, we we're, it's okay. Kind of get God off, get ourselves off the hook. Uh, right. We're not responsible, but we are. Well, I think one of the other things that drove me in that moment, too, is it just happened. Just I just... I'm always reading multiple books at the same time. And I was reading uh, Nahum Ward Lev's book on the liberating path of the Hebrew prophets, uh, which is very much about prophecy in the Old Testament. At the same time, I was uh, reading uh, Andy Crouch's Playing God. 
And they have these, you know, this Jewish scholar looking at the Old Testament prophets and this evangelical scholar looking at the use of power in the world. One morning, they both came to the same, they both said exactly the same thing. And I don't think they were influenced by each other at all, which is that idolatry and injustice are just two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, that what drives us towards idolatry to get our own needs met, to bend God's will to ours, and what drives us to uh, injustice, it's all about us, we want to get what's best for us, we don't care about others, is the same root problems. That's why half of the uh, the Ten Commandments are devoted to idolatry and half are devoted to injustice. I mean, you just see this. Once my eyes were opened up that, I just saw it everywhere. And, so to re- and then to see this idolatry of... Uh, taking the Lord's name in vain of, you know, holding up a Bible for not for the Lord's name, but for yourself. Uh, and in the context of people who are trying to uh, peacefully protest injustice was just too big of a coincidence right. uh, to see. You, of course, are referencing the June 1st forced removal of peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square to create space for the president's photo of him holding a Bible in front of St. John's Church. The question is, who was that moment intended for? And are they able to ignore everything that surrounded it? And do they identify with what the president is doing? I think part of the dilemma is, as Christians, we have our identity so much more in secondary issues than we do actually in Christ. Uh, And we don't see that as our primary allegiance, our primary place of identity. And we end up being like, I, when I use this example, when I taught in Minnesota at Bethel University, uh, it, it just, it really mattered if you were a Vikings fan or a Packers fan. Mm-hmm. And if you were, you know, if you were a Vikings fan, the Vikings could do no wrong and were awesome and the Packers fan, the vice versa. Uh, but if you'd had, if you'd been born in different families, you would have had completely different viewpoints on the Vikings or the Packers. Partly, it's not a very important thing, but it's because your identity gets wrapped up in it. I lived in New England for eight years when my uh, sons were uh, in middle school, which, you know, your sports identity gets set. So we rooted for all the sports teams. It was a good time. You know, Red Sox winning a lot, Super Bowls by the Patriots. But it was funny. It took me almost a decade of move after moving away from New England to finally just admit out loud that everybody in the country knew Bill Belichick cheats. Like I couldn't, like I, I couldn't get myself to say that because it felt like that was uh, uh, somehow to betraying my <laughs> New England uh, identity. And so, but we right. do the same thing, and I, we do that with politicians. Oh, I can't possibly, you know, criticize a Democratic politician. Or I can't possibly uh, criticize a Republican politician because that would hurt us, our side, our team, and that is right. not Christ-like thinking. In my earlier years, I could be defined quite easily by my fandom. So I am intimately aware of the constant threat fandom poses to objectivity. I imagine that you had to weigh what writing this article would mean. Where did the conviction come from to address what you referred to earlier as human responsibility and causality? Um, Well, I just come through a pretty intense time of uh, prayer and scripture reading and fasting through not just Lent, but I felt called to do it through Pentecost as well. And uh, I think it was the week of Pentecost, maybe even the day after, as when this, this idea of God's regret, that God regret, you know, regretted making somebody uh, a leader, even though it was his idea to begin with, what we do have is all these examples that uh, 
God changes his mind. Uh, he changes his mind is in his con- talking with Abraham. He changes his mind in, his, in talking to Moses. Um, now, you know, the counter argument is to say, well, God knew what was going to happen in the end. He was shaping those people. I think that's probably true. And there probably was an element here of where these people, Israel wanted a king. And so God warned them how tough it was going to be to have a king because they'd have bad kings. He said, give us one anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he did. Uh, so I'm sure he knew what was going to happen in one sense, but there was, you know, God is a, is a person. He's a person in a way that we can't possibly imagine. Uh, but he lives and moves and acts and feels uh, not in a lesser way than us, but in a greater way. And so for him to see what Saul is doing and to, uh, to feel deep regret for what had happened um, is not, uh, is a very biblical idea. First Samuel chapter 15 records Saul losing the position of king. Everything seems to go back to relationship. Saul's with God and the people who he was to serve. How can we do a better job of bridge building with people that are in our care? Well, and Paul was really good at starting with where people are. Um, when he was preaching to Jewish audiences, he always started in the Old Testament scriptures. But when he got into the Gentile audiences, uh, Acts 17 is a great example of that. He actually starts with their own poets, their own uh, cultural uh, icons, and, and begins with a presupposition that you are trying to know God. You just don't know him very well. You've had little encounters with him. but you don't. So when you say to a non-Christian, you don't know God, and they've actually taken, they've looked at a sunset and they've experienced God being near to them, or they, at the birth of their own child, they've experienced the nearness of God, or they have gone to a friend at church and the Holy Spirit's drawn near, and you tell them you don't know God, says, well, then, you, I don't know, tell you what you say. No, you've tasted of God, but he's an unknown God to you. And I, I would like to help you know him a little bit better by telling you a little bit more of where I am on my journey. That is very powerful and persuasive. You reference Paul, another central Bible figure, credited with writing much of the New Testament. Between the early to late 50s AD, his writings were critical to the development of the early church. Do you have additional advice on how we might better avail ourselves to the service of others? No, you even said that some people are bothered by the statement that I become all things to all men that by all possible means I might win some. Uh, It just means when I'm with Gentiles, I think like Gentiles and try to figure out what's the good news to a Gentile. And when I'm with Jews, I think like a Jew. And I try to figure out what is the good news to the Jews? Because they were different things. And boy, that's really true today, trying to discern what out of this glorious inbreaking of the kingdom of God that Jesus has initiated, what out of that is the the true good news to the person I'm talking to? uh, I mean, it's something Paul's constantly on the lookout for. Don't put yourself into factions. Don't say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, you know. I'm of Cephas. Uh, and then he warns them in Galatians, don't bow, bite and devour one another in these conflicts. And I sometimes feel like right now the church is doing a worse job of not having thoughtful, nuanced, careful conversation has fallen into the, uh, I don't, people use the cancel culture, but just, I, I cancel you because you have this right. viewpoint that someone's even me, but not listening to one another. Uh, and if the early church had done that, I try to imagine what would have happened in Acts chapter 15, where they're trying this, making this incredible decision. One side saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to become Jewish. And the other side right. saying, you can become a Christian without being Jewish. 
I mean, what would have happened if they're like us? They would have bit and devoured one another. Instead, they spent days listening, talking, praying with one another. And then at the end of it, they were able in this collaboration to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I mean, they could actually make a Spirit-led conversation. And I think when we prayerfully and carefully come together to try to think things through, we're in a much better place to actually hear the leading of the Spirit than if we just fall into our pre-assigned denominational or traditional or political categories. Being mindful of the impact of our choices uh, in any arena or platform is critical to good leadership. I would like to take a moment to discuss with you the future of hope, which of course is a youth theological and service institute. Also, the diverse gathering of leaders in both the Los Angeles and Boston area that you helped to spearhead. Who was your inspiration and how did all of this come about? Oh, all of it comes back to, I mean, I grew up in a, in a thoughtful family uh, in regards to issues of, uh, of race and justice. Um, and we changed parts of the country once. And so that helped me kind of get a little more objectivity on things going on and developed friends uh, of multiple cultures, uh, primarily through sports. Uh, and then my, uh, the Reverend Evie Hill from South Central Los Angeles had an enormous impact on my wife and I. He came to Wheaton when I was a student, um, and Sue and I started uh, with some friends the Wheaton and Watts program, where we would go spend yeah. our spring break uh, learning how to do evangelism from uh, Evie Hill's church. Uh, okay. And so it has been a big, just a big part of us our entire life. So uh, whether that was in Los Angeles or in Boston with the Boston Ministers Prayer Summit. Um, or when I got to Knoxville, trying to figure out what, how can we serve here? And Johnson University uh, had been kind of, was emerging from being kind of a, an enclave on the edge of the city to being someplace that really wanted to engage the city. And so I uh, made the decision that we wanted to try to create more opportunities uh, in, for students that we had not done a good job traditionally of meeting. And so it's, it's been a, one of the greatest joys of my life. So, Dr. Evie Hill was a tremendous preacher who continues to reach others through people such as yourself. I am sure he would be proud. Dr. Stratton, it has been my pleasure. Thank you for dropping by for the conversation. Oh, it's been wonderful, John. It's been a highlight of my, my month of July getting to know you. Thanks so much for reaching out. Mine as well. Gary Stratton, Dean of Arts and Science and Professor of Spiritual Formation and Cultural Leadership at Johnson University. For more information on how to become a two-handed warrior, visit GaryDavidStratton.com. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.